So 98% of Americans believe that all people should be allowed to own and read a Bible. So 98% of all Americans believe that everyone in the world should be able to own and read a Bible. We're not taking questions. All right. (laughs) How about this one? 88% of all American households have a Bible. So 88% of all Americans have a Bible in their home. All right. 60% of Americans say that they want to read the Bible more. 60% of Americans say they want to read the Bible more. Now, here we go. 19% of American evangelicals read their Bibles outside of Sunday. 19%. And evangelicals, it's a kind of a, you know, it's a good word. It explains what they are. But let me just break it down. Bible-believing evangelistic believers. So people who believe the Bible is the Word of God and believe that it should be applied to your everyday lives, right? 19% of American evangelicals read their Bibles outside of their local worship gathering. 19%. If you take it down within the youth of evangelicals, it's 3%. 3%. 9% of Americans claim to read the Bible on a daily basis. Only 9%. 9%. Now, remember, 88% of all American households have a Bible. Only 9% in America read it. Okay? Or listen to it. Um, and so forth. That's another thing. I have friends... A uh, gentleman that used to, uh, used to hang out with all the time, he didn't like to read. I mean, he really didn't. A lot of guys don't like to read, to be honest with you, a lot of guys. I'm that one rare exception, and it, it's very rare for men to really enjoy reading, unless it's like a Western book, right? Right, gentlemen? Louis Lamar, shoot somebody up, and then I'll read it, right? Um, so they make, just to let you all know, that you, if you don't know this, I'm sure you do, Bible comes in MP3 format, CD format. So if reading isn't your thing, you could listen every day, right? Um, So 9% of Americans claim to read the Bible on a daily basis, on a daily basis. What does that tell us about the American church? It's illiterate. The American church does not know what its own Bible says. And that... It's evident in how we live. And here's why. Whatever you believe dictates the outcome of how you live. So if you believe something to be true, you'll live in a way that reflects that belief. So if Elena wakes up tomorrow and she believes with all of her heart that the Bible says she can fly, without any outside help, just on her own. She can flap her arms and go. What that will end up being is a funeral that I'll be doing in a few months. Because she's believing something, wholeheartedly believing that the Bible says something that it doesn't, 
And then her life will live out that belief. Her life will live out that belief. So if there are beliefs that you hold that are unbiblical, that means you will have lifestyles that do not worship God. Or, even worse, lifestyles that are sins. Because you believe the Bible says something it doesn't. And it's because, as we just as the American church, and, and even us here, even New Covenant, um, I've heard plenty of things, you know, of different beliefs that I, you know, sometimes I just kind of grimace and be like, well, within a year, we'll get to that one. You know, within a year, we'll get there. Um, and to be honest with you, every single one of us, and me included, could spend more time in the Word of God, allowing it just saturate over us. There are plenty of times when you read something or hear something, you know, that you, you get a portion of it. And then uh, some of you will notice this. You know, you'll go back over it. Maybe it's a year later, and it's like, whoa, I didn't see that there the first time. I've read this before, but I didn't see that there. And it just keeps happening over and over and over. The depths of the Word of God are unbelievable, but the shallowness of our minds are even unbelievable. We can't grasp every bit of it all at once. We have to go over it and over it and over it. I had a young girl once before... Uh, tell me, it's been years, six years ago, I think. She uh, invited me to go sit down and eat with her as she was leaving the church. And she wanted to tell me face to face, which, I, to be honest with you, was the most incredible things in my life. Most people, when they leave a church that I'm pastoring, they just disappear and then I never hear, like literally, they just stop talking to me, right? Um, this person wanted to sit face to face and I was so blessed for that. And, and she ended up staying part of the church. And even as Mosaic, um, you know, faded away from New Covenant, uh, this girl, her name's Anna, she moved to Alabama, part of a ministry, uh, Karen Wheaton's ministry in Alabama. But when she's home, she's come back here many times and visited. Um, anyway, so we're sitting down, and Anna says, I really think that we need to get past um, the gospel and start talking about more things. Well, there are more things in the Bible than just the gospel. But when you're planting a church and you're dealing with a bunch of unbelievers and none of them really understand the gospel after a year, you have a tendency to just go over the gospel, right? And all of us need a, a fresh repainting with the Word of God, a fresh coat over and over and over again of the Word of God. All right, so we're going to... Um, go through these as quickly as I possibly can. I'm not going to have the verses up here. You guys are going to actually have to do a little work today uh, and open up a Bible and find the verses. I've got them. I'll read them to you, uh, but you guys are going to have to um, find them yourselves today. So, Michael, don't even help them. Don't even help them. All right. All right. Make sure you all know where to get to on things. And I will be reading these. So the first one, number one, you can go to that. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. Go with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9. 
And we'll be looking at verses 11 through 13. Matthew 9, 11 through 13. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well need no, need, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then go with me to Matthew chapter 16. And verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The truth is, and Jesus came to save those who realize that they can't save themselves. The gospel is a message to those who have come to the conclusion that they cannot help themselves. Now, there is merit to this saying when it comes to things like um, God will help you read a ruler if you start trying to read a ruler. Okay, You can't just be like, it's like the kid that wants to take a test who never studied. Oh God, I pray over this test this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will help me pass this exam. Right? And God's up there laughing. And it's like, sorry, buddy. You know, the Holy Spirit will bring things back to remembrance, you know, but he's not necessarily going to give you information that you chose not to do the work on. Okay? That's, now that's the case. But when it comes to a principle, a doctrine, a biblical concept that God only helps those who help themselves, the truth is that God only helps those who realize they need help. Look at all the people that God, through Jesus, ministered to during his life. Look, at all, look through the scripture of all the ones that Jesus condemned to hell. I can tell you the people they weren't. They weren't the prostitutes. Now, one time will you find in the New Testament Jesus ever telling a prostitute she's going to hell. It's never a tax collector. It was never a Roman soldier. It was only those who thought they could help themselves. It was the Pharisee, the religious elite. So the truth is, you and I are helped by Jesus when we come to the conclusion we can't help ourselves. I went to NA and AA. I stood up every single night, well, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, and told them, hi, my name's Stephen, I'm a drug addict. And then I'd retell my story and say how many days I've been sober. And usually it was one or two. Because I couldn't help myself. And those programs couldn't help me because it was all about me helping myself. You can't help yourself. Now the problem with this belief, if we truly believe that God helps those who help themselves, then we are ignorant of our own need for him. 
we, we are convinced then that I deserve this. I kind of helped God get here anyway, right? I mean, honestly, it's my good looks, it's my great charm, the wonderful smile. Or maybe it's my wife, maybe it's her, maybe God, you know. No, it's because I was desperate that God was able to help and heal me. If I would have went to God and said, you know, it'd be really nice if you could, you know, be my sidekick. When I'm in trouble, maybe I could rub a lamp and you, a little smoke could come out and you could grant me some wishes. But to be straight, I've got this life pretty much under control. Every now and then, I may need a little bit of your help. Well, I can tell you that if that's your understanding of God, you have never met him. Because you've never felt you had a need for him. And he doesn't show up where he's not welcome. And so if that's our concept, we don't really even know him. And if that's how we're thinking about God, then it leads us to another conclusion, and that is lack of mercy and compassion on those who truly can't help themselves. If we really believe that God only helps those who help themselves, and somehow we fit in that category because we're so good and wonderful, then when we are introduced to people who cannot help themselves, we can't help but judge them. Because some reason, we've come to the conclusion that we're better than they are. And so when we see a sinner sinning, when we see a person dying in their sin, and they know that it's killing them, but they can't help themselves. Instead of being judgmental, we should be looking at a person and realizing they are prime for the only one who can help. Jesus. Jesus. Number two. Number two. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. Go with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 23. Isaiah chapter 23. And we'll look at, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 26. I apologize, Isaiah 26. And we'll be looking at uh, verses 3 through 4. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. You go with me to John chapter 14, really quick here. John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The truth, God loves when we are happy. He loves when we're happy and cheerful. But that is secondary to what God really wants for you. God desires to give you peace. Peace. Now, what is peace? The word peace is the word shalom, 
That's the Old Testament word, shalom. And it means to be knitted together so that everything is working in its proper function. Uh, one of my favorite demonstrations of this word peace is when it was used uh, to describe the making of water containers. And so these ladies would weave together pitchers to hold water. Now imagine ladies weaving something together so tight that it could hold water without pitch inside of it. And so when a container that was weaved together could hold water without pitch or tar inside, it was in a state of shalom. All of the, the, the elements that are weaved together are working as they should, and they've become one, and they're not at war with one another. They've become one, and now they can fully accomplish its purpose. This is shalom. This is what peace is. Um, this is what God's desire all through the Old Testament and in the New Testament is for all humanity, is for us to enter into shalom where every single human being is living in absolute harmony with Him, God, and one another so that the world is at peace. Shalom. Working together, in, you know, interwoven tightly, tightly together. Now, the word happiness, as nice as that word is, it doesn't work. It, I was happy two days ago. Woke up, had a good breakfast. I was happy. Three days ago. That's it, three days ago. Two days ago, I was not happy. Yesterday, I was not happy. Today, I'm still a little not happy. Just the way it is. Circumstances in my life changed from three days ago. They changed. Circumstances. Now, here's the interesting thing. I may not be happy, but nothing inside of me has changed from three days ago. I still believe, trust, and I have peace. I have peace. I'm not all freaked out. I'm not pulling my hair out. I'm not in the stage of depression. I'm just not happy. Now, tomorrow, circumstances may change again, and I may be happy. In other words, happiness is a reflection of circumstances changing in your life, affecting your emotions. One day you can be happy, the next day you can be unhappy. The next day you can be happy and unhappy. Happy, unhappy. I mean, it's like it's a roller coaster if you live your life based on happiness. It's a roller coaster. My dad has lost three boys, three children. I'm the one that, that he got stuck with, you know. He lost three boys. He wasn't happy. Truth of the matter is, though, he thought God was supposed to make him happy. He thought that was the point. And because he was, was searching for happiness, and he didn't get happiness, 
He just ran away from the only source that could bring him peace. And that was God. That was the only thing that could bring him peace. Now, when he finally came back to it, now I, I, this is so interesting to me. I was just real briefly on this. For years growing up, every time my dad would talk about my brother Lynn, it was the, out of the three that died, that's the only one my dad really got to know. The other two were twins. They died shortly after they were born. Lynn was the firstborn. And firstborns have a special place. They're the firstborn. Lynn took my dad's name. My dad's name is Jerry Lynn White. Lynn's name was Jerry Lynn White. And they called him Lynn. Okay. Uh, so Lynn was special. He was, that, he, was, he was my dad's dream and desires manifest. And then Lynn is born with a tumor that they didn't know right off the bat. And this would have been in the 60s, actually, 60s. So medicine at that time was obviously not where it is today. After a few years, Lynn started, his head started growing really, really large. Uh, his smile went to the side. If you watch me smile, I smile to the side. It's not because anything's wrong with me. It's because I grew up watching my big brother, and I thought that was cool. So it just became part of who I am. Um, now, when Lynn died of this brain cancer at seven years of age, it destroyed my dad's life. Destroyed my mom's, too. But my mom was able to get... Not over it, but through it. My dad couldn't get through it. He was stuck. And every single day, his life was dictated by that tragedy. What was the difference? My mom had peace. It destroyed her. It broke her heart. But she had peace. And because she had peace, years later she could talk about him and not break down into a sobbing mess, but rejoice the time that she had. Last, last time we went down was Christmas, and my dad mentioned Lynn, and it was the first time in my life, and I'm 40 now, it was the first time in my life that I've ever seen my dad mention his name and not cry. Why? Because my dad has finally gotten in a relationship with God where it's not based on his own happiness, but it's based on finding peace. And he has it. See, this is what God wants. Your happiness will go up and down all the time. Because all it is, it's a word that reflects an emotion. Peace is the state that the world was created in. And it's the state that God is trying to get you to live in. It's where harmony is. It's not where the absence of problems exist. But it is where there is this absolute faith and trust that the Creator has my back. That He will make the tragic into something that will work in my, ha in my behalf, in my favor. That's peace. Now, we'll go to number three. The third belief. The third belief. That for some reason we Christians have a tendency to believe. 
believe we're, we're, we are, or were, all God's children. Now, I know this may, um, I don't think this will come to too big of a surprise for most of you, but the truth is we're not all God's children. If you would, go with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, and look at verses 15 through 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Could also say daughters here. The Bible was written during a very sexist period of time. So it would say, let's read it if it was written for, for you know, right now. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba is Daddy. The Spirit of God is where you are, is, is what marks you as adopted and as a child of God. It's the Spirit of God that does that. Now, it's, it's true that every single human being bears an image of God. Let us make man in our own image and in our own likeness. Let us make them. But it's a broken image. You're not, and I'm not, and none of us are, a perfect image of God any longer. We're broken icons. That's what the word image there in the Hebrew says. It's icon. And we're broken icons of God. But every single human being bears some mark of God. This is why all human life is precious. This is why I'm a staunch pro-life believer. Because I believe that every single baby, whether they're born in the Middle East, in the South, in the West, in the Far East, whether they're built, you know, built, whether they're, they're born right in the middle of Iowa, every single child bears the mark of its creator. And therefore, its life is precious. It's valuable because of that mark. But just because every child bears that mark does not mean every single human being is a child of God. Because the truth is that every one of us rebelled from God. Yes, you were, you were born to be a child of God, but every single one of you left Him. Every single one of you at some point in your life made a decision to walk away from Him. Oh, no, I didn't, Pastor. Oh, yes, you did. Your lying to me right now tells me that you did. It's part of your nature. Adam and Eve walked away, and they gave you a sickness that's been infused in every single human DNA from that point on. We are prone to walk away from the very greatest thing there is. And so all humanity walks away, but God in His goodness and His love chooses to become human and die for you and me, live for you and me, resurrect for you and me. And then God gives Jesus a reward. Acts chapter 2 tells us, or yes, it's Acts 2, that, that when Jesus resurrected and we ascended to the high, that the Father gave him the Holy Spirit. Think about that. The Father says, here's my Spirit, do with it as you wish. It's your reward. 
And Jesus pours it out onto the church. And then Paul tells us in Romans, it is that spirit that makes you a son or a daughter of God. So why every person bears the image of God, only those who have placed their faith in Jesus have then had the Holy Spirit and the promises, if you place your faith in Jesus, Scripture promises over and over and over that you will then be, you will receive the Holy Spirit at that moment. So the moment you say, I trust, it doesn't make sense, it's kind of a strange story, but for some reason, every portion of my being inside of me says, it's the truth. And I place my faith in that, I place my life in that, it's at that moment the Spirit of God moves into you. And you were afar, but you have now been made a daughter or a son. And as much as Jesus is loved and cherished by the Father, so now are you. That's the gospel, actually. Now, what's, what's so wrong with believing that we're all children of God. Well, here's the problem. We think that all are children of God. We're, in fact, ignoring a life-threatening problem. Sin. If Aaron had cancer, and I, you know, you guys have all heard this before, but I'm just going to use it. And he went to the doctor. And the doctor said, you know, man, I, I really like this kid. I don't want him to have, like, you know, I don't want him to be bummed out today. I don't want him really to be bummed out tomorrow. So I'm going to tell him he's got a cold. That's, that's a swelled up lip node from the cold. I mean, I know it's the size of a bowling ball, but it's a cold. Now, has that doctor done any favors for Aaron? No. None whatsoever. When we ignore the fact of what sin has done to humanity, and we make the claim that we're all we're all children of God. We're ignoring the fact that a good portion of humanity is suffering from a sickness that leads to eternal death. And you have the cure. You have the cure. That cure was transfused into you by the Holy Spirit. And you have the method for that cure to be transferred, transfused into anyone else in this world. It's the gospel. It's your testimony. It's what God has done for you and pointing it to Jesus. And when you fail to recognize that we're not all brothers and sisters and that there are, every human being isn't the children of God, you are in fact, as the doctor is condemning Aaron to life, to death, as the doctor is condemning Aaron to death by not treating his cancer, so you are in fact condemning someone to eternal separation from only true happiness, God, when you refuse to treat their death with the gospel.